from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with John Sargent on August 6, 2018. John hails from the Six Nations of the Grand River Reserve in Ontario. Born of Mohawk and European descent, John discovered the Baha'i faith at a young age and has devoted much of his life to the Canadian Baha'i community. He's been involved in outreach work in Africa, remote indigenous communities, and throughout North America. Retired from a career in architecture and First Nation administration, he now lives in central British Columbia with his wife. John is the author of Stumbling in the Half-Light, which is his first book. It chronicles his life from the Six Nations Reservation as he embarks on a lifetime of spiritual adventures within the Baha'i community. Through 52 short autobiographical stories, John Sargent retells a life of humor, humility, loss, and faith. John's openness leads him through a life of adventure, from a childhood on the reserve, to years in Africa, to a career in architecture, and finally as an administrator of First Nations communities. John reads two stories from his book. I started the interview by asking John where he grew up, and what was religious life like growing up. I'm a half Mohawk Indian and half European descent. And I grew up on the Six Nations Indian Reserve in Ontario, Canada. Now, that's where I grew up uh, as a small child. But later, I moved to Casper, Wyoming. And we lived in Casper for many years. That's my background and and basically where I'm from. Right. And what was religious life like growing up? Well, that was interesting. My um, father came from a fundamentalist Baptist background. His father was a deacon of the Baptist Church in Windsor Locks, Connecticut, and was a very devout and religious man, a wonderful person. My grandparents on my mother's side, on the other hand, were Anglican, but my grandfather followed very closely the longhouse faith of the uh, Aboriginal people of uh, Canada. And were you exposed to that tradition at all? Yes. Uh, in fact, some of the stories in my book uh, deal with the legends that my grandfather told me as a child about the Iroquois people and the founding of the League of Peace. And so what was your spiritual journey that led you to becoming a Baha'i? Well, actually, my father found the Baha'i faith. Uh, He was going through a very rough patch in his life out in Casper, Wyoming, and it was uh, during that time that he heard about the faith. And uh, he was very, uh, what what could I say, offended by what the Baha'is had to say. And so he uh, determined he was going to write a tract called The Case Against the Baha'is. But you can't write a tract against something without knowing anything about it. So he began seriously studying the faith. And as a result, he eventually accepted uh, the faith. So I grew up essentially in a Baha'i home. And when was it that 
you could say that the Baha'i faith became your religion instead of the religion of your parents or your fathers? Well, I, I would say right from the very beginning, because I had such a combined religious background, I had many re religious questions. I tell a story in my book about the time my the Korean War was on and the orphans uh, formed a choir to raise money for the orphans of the Korean War. And they toured the United States and they were on the Ed Sullivan Show. And one of the songs they sang was Buddha Lagalami, which means Buddha loves me, this I know, sung to the tune of Jesus loves me. Oh, my grandmother jumped up, ran across the room, turned off the TV and said, Buddhists are going to hell. I was only about five years old, four or five years old at the time, and that really troubled me. I, uh, I couldn't understand how God could send children to, to hell just because they were Buddhists. I mean, considering the tragedy that had struck them already. So I, from a young age, I, I was really um, troubled by that uh, occurrence. Interestingly enough, the first time I ever heard about the Baha'i faith was when my dad had me go to a Baha'i children's class. And in there, uh, the teacher was talking about progressive revelation and how all the great manifestations all come from the same source. I remember being so excited about that, that uh, God doesn't send Buddhists to hell and, and uh, that it's all part of the same developmental process and uh, God loves us all. And, uh, and I was, I think, very comforted by that as a, even as you know, a 13, 14-year-old child and uh, wanted to be a part of this faith, wanted to be a part of, of this concept of unity. So I'm speaking with John Sargent, architect, an administrator for First Nation communities and author of Stumbling in the Half-Light. So, John, tell me about your career in architecture. Well, uh, ever since I was old enough to know what an occupation was, I wanted to be an architect. I just love beautiful buildings and wanted to be part of that. As part of our Baha'i life, my father and I pioneered to southern Rhodesia. Now, in the Baha'i faith, pioneering is like missionary work, except you're not paid to be a missionary. You just move to a country that needs help, and you just become part of the regular Baha'i community there. Southern Rhodesia, which today is Zimbabwe, needed some, some people to caretake the Baha'i center there in Salisbury, so we um, moved to Africa. So we, there we were in uh, Salisbury, and uh, Salisbury, by the way, is now known as Harare, Zimbabwe now. The university there didn't offer architecture or civil engineering, and as a consequence, I um, didn't know what to do. But Baha'u'llah tells us just to rely on God and engage in some occupation, and God will provide that which is destined for us. So I um, applied for a job as a computer with a surveyor general. Now, today we know computers as those little black screens and black boxes. But in those days, computers were people who computed. And uh, they needed somebody who could do trigonometry to check the surveys that came in uh, to the surveyor general. So I did that for a while. And uh, I, I wasn't really happy with that. That can be a boring job after a while. And so uh, it just so happened that the government was starting a new program where they were training technicians. 
in Rhodesia at that time, the technicians had to be brought in from England or America, and they had to pay to relocate the families down. So they had the need for architectural technologists, so they set up a training program within the government. Since I was already working for the government, uh, I asked for the transfer over to uh, the uh, architectural technology training program, and I was accepted. And so I started my training then as, a, as an architect. So I'm speaking with John Sargent, an architect, an administrator for First Nation communities, and author of Stumbling in the Half-Life. So John, tell me about your work as an administrator for First Nation communities. As part of my uh, architectural work, I was out in Saskatchewan. We, my wife and I were living in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan at that time. I saw an advert for somebody that they needed to do physical planning for First Nation communities. And by physical planning, that's roads and schools and housing and subdivisions and that sort of thing. So I applied for and got that job. So for many years, I worked as a capital projects manager for a number of First Nations in uh, Saskatchewan and in British Columbia. As I grew, grew in my uh, capacity uh, to understand the uh, functioning of First Nation communities, eventually I became a band, what they call a band manager up here. It's a um, chief administrator for a First Nations community. And so I began managing uh, whole communities. I enjoyed that work. That was really, I think, the, I'm going to say, the penultimate goal of my career was serving as a, an administrator in these uh, various First Nation communities, which have a, a great number of difficulties. Clean water, proper sewage disposal, all of these sorts of things are, were part of that, but also the social programs and education programs and health programs on the band. And uh, I really enjoyed that work. However, it was very stressful, and it wasn't long before my health began to fade. And uh, eventually I collapsed at work, and that was pretty well my end of my career of, of, of doing anything. I'm afraid I, I have congestive heart failure, so I'm retired now. Oh, my. That's tough. So I'm speaking with John Sargent architect, administrator for First Nations communities, and author of Stumbling in the Half-Light. So, John, tell us a little bit about the book Stumbling in the Half-Light. Well, I'm a storyteller. It's a traditional First Nations um, thing to tell stories. And I know my family used to sit around after Sunday dinner and tell and embellish stories. And so we always enjoyed that time. My grandfather who was um, a school teacher, was a great storyteller, and people would always ask him to tell a story. And my favorite was The Cremation of Sam McGee by Robert Service. And uh, he would tell that poem often after Sunday dinners. So right from the time I was a young child, I was a storyteller and continued that process uh, right through my life. And my daughter and my sister would often say, uh, you should write these stories down. I uh, was reluctant to do, do that. First of all, when you're telling a story, you're, you can see the faces of your audience and you can uh, see whether you're losing them or whether they're really engaged. And you can use uh, facial gest and hand gestures to uh, emphasize certain aspects of the story. And I wasn't really sure I could capture that in writing. So I was reluctant 
to write it down. But after I retired, I sort of said to myself, what am I going to do? Uh, I'm, I've always been very active in, in work, and I just sitting around doing nothing was going to drive me crazy. So I started initially to write family stories that my grandparents had told me and some other stories just to pass down to my uh, daughter and her, my grandchildren and to Tanya, that's my sister, and uh, so it's, the book starts out basically with family stories. When I got to the part where we were Baha'is, became Baha'is, a lot of the stories had to do with the confirmations of God. And there was a more general audience among the Baha'i community anyway for these stories. And so I wrote a number of those. And so in the end, the book kind of morphed from a family history into humorous anecdotes about uh, my life, many of them having to do with uh, my experiences within the Baha'i community. So, John, what's the significance of the title, Stumbling in the Half-Light? Well, in the Baha'i writings, uh, Shoghi Effendi, who was the great-grandson of Baha'u'llah, who Baha'is believe is the latest messenger from God to man. He said that we were living in a period, a transition period between the coming of Baha'u'llah and the full development of his revelation on earth. And he called this period the period of the half-light. In other words, we understand some of the teachings of Baha'u'llah, but the full ramifications of his teachings will only become apparent in the future. And so I have been serving, uh, I considered myself serving in this half-light, but I wasn't always doing a very good job. (laughs) So uh, I titled the book Stumbling in the Half-Light, which meant that uh, basically I was trying my best, but uh, sometimes I just flubbed things up. I wouldn't (laughs) really achieve what I had hoped to achieve uh, at the outset. So I'm speaking with John Sargent, architect, an administrator for First Nation communities, and author of Stumbling in the Half-Light. So, John, do you have an excerpt from your book that you'd like to share with us? Yes. The book consists of 52 short stories. Interesting to note that when I started, I thought I was going to, it would be easy to write a book, no problem. Mm -hmm. I'll write a story a day for 100 days and my book would be done. Anyway, five years later, I had 52 stories and I says, that's as good as it's going to get. <laughs> I'm finished. So the book consists of 52 short stories. This particular sh- story, I think, gives an example of the kind of anecdote that the, the book contains that talk about how we can rely on God and he is always there guiding us, protecting us, and just showing his great love for all of us. So this story is called The Aborigines Are Coming. Now, I should mention that it involves uh, the mention of a lot of institutions within the Baha'i faith. And so I'm not going to go through them all. But let me just say that the Baha'i administration consists of two parts, an elected part, uh, that is boards of directors at the local and national and international level that are elected by the membership, and an appointed part, which consists of uh, boards of counselors on each continent and auxiliary board members. And, and the purpose of these individuals is to assist 
the Baha'is, uh, either individually or as institutions, in problems that arise. So I think with that, I can uh, tell the story and you'll get some idea of the, <laughs> both the complexity of Baha'i administration and also how it works really quite smoothly around the world. So the other thing I'm going to mention here is a fireside. One of the things Baha'is do is people like to ask questions about uh, the Baha'i faith. What, uh, what is it and wh- uh, what are the teachings? And so Baha'is sometimes open their homes and invite people to come in and uh, where they can ask their questions and hopefully receive answers uh, that are satisfying to them so that they can understand more what the Baha'i faith is about. The Aborigines are coming The Mabubi family fireside in North Vancouver was, for many years, one of the most vibrant in the Lower Mainland. The Mabubis worked with Curtis and Sonny, two First Nation believers in their community, to host these once-a-month events. Several times they had invited me over as a speaker, and the upcoming Friday night was one of those occasions. That Friday afternoon was sunny and warm, and I was having coffee out on the balcony of the townhouse complex where we lived when I heard the phone ring. It was the secretary of the British Columbia Regional Baha'i Council. She related a long and complex story about a young Aborigine in Australia named Franklin Freeman, who had recently become a Baha'i and was traveling to Vancouver for some sort of cultural exchange event. An Australian member of the Continental Board of Councillors had contacted the Canadian, a Canadian councillor to suggest that it would be good if the Baha'is in Vancouver could greet him while he was here. The Canadian councillor had contacted the National Spiritual Assembly and they had contacted the British Columbia Regional Baha'i Council and that was why they were phoning me. Could I please make contact with him when he is in town? Sure, I said. When is he arriving? Uh, We're not sure, was the reply. He may already be here. Oh, okay. What hotel is he staying at? Uh, We're not sure of that either. Oh, okay. What was the name of the cultural event he was attending? There was a long pause on the other end of the line. And then she said, we're not sure of that either. (laughs) Uh, Oh, what was his name again? Franklin Friedman, she said triumphantly, as that was at least one fact we had to work with. Okay, leave it with me and I'll try and make contact, I said, and I hung up the phone. The lower mainland of Vancouver is a vast cosmopolitan metroplex of several million people with hundreds of, if not a thousand hotels and with many dozens of various cultural associations. How the heck was I going to find Franklin in all that mess? So I decided to say a prayer. During the prayer, a quote from the House of Justice crossed my mind. When the friends realized that the hosts of the kingdom are waiting to rush forth and assist them, they will then no doubt arise with greater confidence to take the first step. And this, we know, will be aided and guided from on high, for the very act of striving to respond to God's call will bring in its wake countless divine blessings. So I got up and glanced heavenward and said, Okay, you guys. I'm going to take the first step. 
The rest is up to you. I got out the phone book and decided to call the Indian and Native Friendship Center in Vancouver. They should know of any Aboriginal cultural exchange event going on in the city. However, all I got was a recording saying the office was closed for the weekend. Well, that was the first step and nobody home, game over. So I closed the phone book. But as the book closed, I caught the glance of a listing with the words cultural festival in the title. What was that? I said to myself, and I quickly leafed back through the book to the page I was on before. The listing was for the International Cultural Festival Society, so I hurriedly dialed that number. The voice of a small child came on the phone and simply said, hello. This did not sound promising. Maybe I dialed the wrong number. Is this the International Cultural Festival Society? I asked. That's my mommy, said the little voice. Is your mommy there? I asked, hopefully. No. Will she be home soon? I'm not sure. Okay, I'll call back later. Okay, she said, and then added, do you want her cell phone number? Oh, yes, please. As I dialed that number, I wondered how I was going to frame my request. As this festival had its own phone listing, it may be a large event with various groups coming from around the world, and the organizer may not know the names of all the individual performers. But before I could think it through, a quick harassed voice said, Charlene here. Uh, yes, Charlene, my name is John Sargent, and I'm looking for an Aboriginal performer named Franklin Free. Hold on a second, she interrupted suddenly. Then a thick Australian accent came through the line. Frankie here. White. <laughs> what? Stop. No, not possible. I looked heavenward and shook my head in disbelief. Two quick calls and I'm talking to Franklin Friedland on the line? <laughs> That's a great story, John. Great story. <laughs> so I'm speaking with John Sargent, architect, administrator of First Nation communities, and author of Stumbling in the Half-Light. And he just read an excerpt from one of the short stories that's in the book. Now, John, you had mentioned that there were stories also about your family. And I was wondering if you could share one of those stories as well. All right. Okay. This is a story about ancient family history here. It starts in 1360 AD. And I give you some idea of my First Nation background. This story is called Wilderness Prophet. When I was a young child, my grandfather Anderson used to tell me the stories of the people and that I should be proud to be a Mohawk of the Turtle Clan and how the Haudenosaunee, the people of the Longhouse, came to be. Back in the dark days before the League of Peace, the Mohawk, Onondaga, Oneida, Cayuga, and Seneca tribes lived in the land of the Finger Lakes in what is today upstate New York. While they tried to share the land and its resources, more often than not, these interactions led to competition and conflict. Over time, these conflicts became more savage and nearly continuous. There was no peace or security, and all the people lived in constant fear of raiding parties. Many villagers whose food supplies were stolen or destroyed would starve to death 
during the long winters. These wars of attrition made the tribes small and powerless, and surrounding tribes would prey on them and push them out of the good hunting grounds. Soon the cry of the people reached up and touched the heart of the Great Spirit. He sent a messenger to a young girl across the Great Water in Huron Territory, near Tyendinaga Reserve today, to tell her that she would give birth to a special child formed by the Creator to bring peace to the people far to the south. She was to call the child Degandawida. Now, just a footnote here, my grandfather always called him the peacemaker, as his name is so holy, it should not be used in general conversation. However, the girl had a premonition that her child would bring great evil upon her own people in the future, and she tried three times to drown him. But each time, the child bobbed to the surface unharmed. Eventually, she accepted her responsibility, and her son grew up strong, handsome, and spiritually powerful. His only imperfection was that he suffered from a speech impediment. When the time was right, the Creator revealed to the peacemaker his great commission, to go to the warring tribes across the great water and bring the law of love and peace. At first, the peacemaker was reluctant to take on this role and complained that his speech impediment would just make him a laughingstock. The Creator reassured him that through the power of the Holy Spirit, all things were possible, that he would raise up a mouthpiece who would speak on his behalf and to be not afraid of anything, for he was always with him. The Creator then raised up out of the lake a fine stone canoe that the peacemaker could use to travel to the tribes to the south. When the peacemaker reached the southern shore, he happened to land in Mohawk territory. The chief of this area was a much feared, fierce warrior who ate the hearts of his enemies to capture their strength and courage. His name was Hiawatha and he was amazed to see the peacemaker's stone canoe and fearlessness and invited him to his camp to find out why this stranger had come to his territory. The peacemaker told Hiawatha that the great spirit had sent him because he heard the cry of the people and that it was his desire to see peace and trust restored among the tribes. Has your constant warfare made you stronger? No, it has only made you weak and fearful, the peacemaker explained. The law of the creator is love and peace. This is the source of strength and prosperity. He wants to see all the tribes living together under one league of peace. Hiawatha was much impressed by the peacemaker and his powerful message and indicated that he could get the Mohawks to agree to work toward peace. Hiawatha even agreed to go with him to the other tribes to speak on his behalf. The peacemaker and Hiawatha traveled to the other tribes and tried to convince them to come together under the creator's great law of peace. Because of the generations of conflict, however, many said it was a good idea, but they didn't trust the other tribes to uphold the law. However, the peacemaker was able to show them signs and miracles to convince them of the truth of the Creator's words, and many agreed to give it a try. 
All the time they traveled together, the peacemaker taught Hiawatha to memorize the great law of peace and how the structure of the league was to be organized. The last holdout was Tadadaho, the hate-filled chief of the Onondaga, who was a powerful shaman, and he put a curse on the peacemaker and Hiawatha. Tadadaho lived alone in a cave and let hate and desire for vengeance so fester in his heart that his physical appearance changed to that of a distorted monster. When Hiawatha returned home, he found that all three of his daughters had died under mysterious circumstances, and he was convinced it was because of Tadadaho's curse. He became despondent and felt all their efforts were in vain. It seemed that all was lost, but eventually the peacemaker rekindled Hiawatha's faith in the creator's plan and helped him to forgive Tadadaho's evil curse. Together, they traveled back to Tadadaho's cave and taught calming words and sang sacred songs to him for days. Eventually, Tadadaho's countenance began to change. The evil spirits of hate and vengeance left him and his face became radiant with smiles. So changed was Tadadaho that he became the most ardent supporter of the peacemaker in Hiawatha and was eventually named Grand Chief of the League and hereditary keeper of the council fire. With all the tribes willing to try, the peacemaker convened a council fire and brought all the chiefs together. He said that the three main principles of the great law of peace were that through consensus, the people should agree on the hunting grounds allocated to each tribe. They should reduce their weapons to those required for hunting only. And if any one tribe were to rise up against the other tribe, then all the other tribes should intervene to stop the aggressor. He then pulled up a young white pine tree, and below the root ball, a hollow area containing a small stream opened up. And he asked the war chiefs to throw their war clubs and hatchets into the hollow. After this, he replanted the tree and said that as they applied the creator's great law, their peace and prosperity would grow like this white pine. Four white roots of peace would grow out from this spot into the four directions. And eventually, an eagle would build a nest on the top of the tree as a symbol of the all-protecting eye of the creator over them. He then tied five arrows together in a bundle and asked each of the chiefs to pass it around and try to break it. The bundle went around the circle, but none of the chiefs were able to break it. This, he said, was symbolic of the league. As long as the chief held fast to the great law, they would be unbreakable like the bundle. Then he cut the bundle apart and easily broke one of the arrows. If you turn aside from the great law, you will each become like this one arrow and be easily broken. He added, I tell you this, there will come a time in the future when your descendants will turn back their heels on the great law. This will bring a time of great trouble. Your people will be broken. You will become strangers in your own land and the trees will begin to die from the top down as a sign. When this time comes, he continued, I will return and reestablish the peace. This time, not just among the five, but among all the nations. 
After the council fire, he left the chiefs in the hands of Hiawatha and Tadadaho, got into his stone canoe and paddled off to the west, never to be seen again. Then these nations remained united and the organization of the League brought peace and security. Years later, when I heard that Baha'u'llah had come from God to establish peace among all the nations, I remembered this story of the peacemaker told to me by my grandfather. Then when I read Baha'u'llah's writings about the lesser peace, I was really amazed. He said the three main principles of the lesser peace were that the nations should through consensus fix their boundaries with one another. They should reduce their armaments to those required for internal security. And if any one nation were to rise up against another, then all the nations should rise up to subdue that aggressor. I realized then that Baha'u'llah fulfilled within himself the prophecy of the peacemaker, that he would return and reestablish the law of peace among all the nations of the world. So I'm speaking with John Sargent, architect, administrator of First Nation communities, and author of Stumbling in the Half-Light. And he had just read an excerpt from his ancient family history, which was very interesting. John, where can people find your book? Well, right now it is available on Friesen Press Bookstore, and that's F-R-I-E-S-E-N Press bookstore, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Indigo Chapters, iTunes, and in most of the other stores, the book is uh, listed as uh, not in stock, but that's because it is published on demand. And so they can go ahead and order it from Amazon or Barnes & Noble or or whichever store they want, and it will come in the mail. Uh, It'll probably take uh, a little bit longer because it is print-on-demand. Well, John, I want to thank you so much for sharing these stories with us. Yes, well, uh, I want to share it with everyone. So, uh, you know, you can online, you can get a a little bit of a preview. And so I uh, encourage your listeners to go online. Stumbling in the Half-Light is the name of the book. And if they just Google that in, they should get to Amazon or uh, one of these other bookstores, and uh, they'll give give you a little bit of a preview there. So you have a website of your own as well? Yes, I do. It's also Stumbling in the Half-Light that can be Googled. And you'll find when you Google Stumbling in the Half-Light, a whole bunch of sites will come up. The one that's marked Home, H-O-M-E, is the website for the book. I hope you enjoyed that interview with John Sargent, architect, former First Nation administrator, and author of Stumbling in the Half-Light. You can find a link to his website on my post for this interview on abahaiperspective.com. You can also find other interviews at abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel, Abahai Perspective. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for Abahai Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
enaltece nuestra causa para que yo te revele. Enaltece nuestra causa para que yo te revele. Los misterios de mi grandeza y así brille conmigo. Los misterios de mi grandeza con la luz de la eternidad.
a shining lamp and a brilliant star. Oh God, guide me, protect me, make of me a shining lamp and a brilliant star. I was given my name and placed in this family, told what to think in this life that they've handed me. They say they're right, but deep down I know that they are wrong So I gotta stay strong and keep holding on But it's hard when it feels like I've got no voice I'm treated like a child, so I've got no choice But to turn to my friends who make me one of them The pressure never ends, oh God Oh God, guide me, protect me Try to teach me, preacher try to preach me But only you can reach me I know you're always there, I know you've always cared Cause I can feel that there is hope But my vision is impaired by the clouds that have found me As darkness surrounds me Oh God, guide me Oh God, guide me, protect me My power 
JLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.